Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I'm so excited to have one of my absolute heroes on today's episode. Her name is Dr. Gail Dines. Dr. Gail Dines is a professor emerita of sociology at Wheelock College and has been researching and writing about the porn industry for well over 25 years. She is a recipient of the Myers Center Award for the Study of Human Rights in North America and the author of numerous books and articles. Her latest book, Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality, has been translated into five languages. Dr. Dines is the founding president and CEO of the nonprofit Culture Reframed, dedicated to building resilience and resistance in children and youth to the harms of a hypersexualized and pornified society. Culture Reframed develops cutting-edge educational programs that promote healthy development relationships and sexuality. An internationally known speaker and consultant to governmental bodies, Dr. Dines has been described as one of the leading anti-porn scholars and activists in the world. Dr. Dines is a regular guest on television and radio shows, including ABC, MSNBC, CNN, BBC, CBC, and National Public Radio. In addition to her TEDx talk, Dr. Dines' work is the focus of a film by the Media Education Foundation called Pornland, the documentary. Her latest project is serving as chief consultant for the Steven Soderbergh documentary entitled Tsunami, The Impact of Porn. Welcome, Gail. Pleasure to be here. I'm like starstruck right now. I'm so excited to have you on and grateful for the work that you do. You can find information about her nonprofit at culturereframed.org. So let's just jump right into this. Gail, why is pornography a feminist issue? It was really the feminist movement, especially the radical feminist movement, who first began to really understand that we need to see pornography as a harms issue and not a moral issue, that pornography was happening to real women and it had real world consequences on women both in the industry and outside the industry, and that it really grew out of the radical feminist anti-violence movement where we began to see the relationship between pornography and violence against women. Some women are still kind of uncomfortable with the word feminist. I'm trying to get everyone to be extremely comfortable with it and to sit in it and realize that it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Do you have any advice for women who are a little uncomfortable with the notion of a feminist? Well, I would say for many women, it's actually can be quite scary to call yourself a feminist because you open yourself up to all sorts of criticism, ridicule, caricaturing, because really in this society to be a feminist is to fight back against male power. And whenever you take a position where you're resisting being oppressed, then of course the oppressor class comes after you. So I do understand why some women are nervous and anxious about that, but if you really want a full life, if you really want to feel like you have power in the world and sisterhood and the capacity to change the world, then the answer to that for women is to be a feminist and a proud one at that. Hold your head up high and wear that term with pride. I agree. I've taught my little four-year-old daughter to say, I'm a feminist, very definitely. And also my six-year-old and my nine-year-old son. And it kind of makes me a little teary to think about when they say that. It's so cute and I'm so proud of them. Why do some feminists or some women who call themselves feminists support pornography? I used to teach a whole 14-week course on this. So let me try and get it into 
a couple of minutes. So when you think about this feminism that grew out of the 1960s, 70s and 80s, it was a given that if you called yourself a feminist, you were anti-pornography. There was no question. And then what happened around the 90s is that there was a sort of new movement which we often sometimes call the third wave, where really what we call feminism light or faux feminism was the idea that somehow if you embraced pornography, because the argument was we're never going to get rid of it, so let's embrace it and use it in ways that empower us, I would argue was really a capitulation to male power and to the porn industry. And what's happened is over the years, this view of that somehow pornography can be empowering has taken hold, especially in academic circles. I really think I need to say this, that the more privileged a woman is, and the further away she is from ever having to be in pornography in order to put food on the table for her kids, the more easy it is to endorse it as empowering. It's a very privileged white position to say pornography. And I have to add in here prostitution because a lot of the same women who are pro-porn argue that they're pro-prostitution. It's a privileged white position because most of those women who have that argument are so far away from ever having to be in porn or ever having to be in prostitution. The first rule of feminism is do no harm to women. And pornography is one of the most harmful forms of visual representation that we have that delivers to men's brains via the penis a very clear image of misogyny. Absolutely. Why do you think they don't realize they're hurting other women? I think for a lot of them, when I would teach a sort of upper level feminist theories course, a lot of the students would come in with kind of pro-porn views, but it didn't take very long to really get them to see the violence that was going on in porn, the impact on the women in porn, the impact on women who were not in porn but were having to date or hook up with men who had been watching porn and got their sex ed from porn. So I often refer to sort of this whole pro-porn third wave ideology of feminism as a house of cards. It doesn't take much to knock it down. And really, when you think about it, who for a living really wants to be penetrated on camera by any number of men in ways that are violent, brutal, and in ways where you lose rights to your image, to your bodily integrity, to your bodily privacy. You know, so I asked my students, just think about what it would be like if this is what you had to do in order to survive financially. And often I think what happens is we can theorize and theorize, but there's something to be said for just plain, simple empathy. Put yourself in that position and say, would I want that for me? Would I want it for my friends? Would I want it for my daughter, my sister, my mother? And the chances are that the answer is no. Yeah, absolutely. The men who support this stance just simply lack empathy. Do you see it's easier to persuade women to this stance than men? Yes, because when women are looking at porn, they're identifying with the woman in porn. So yes, in that way, you're getting a visceral bodily reaction to what's happening to her. But I have to say that when I go and give lectures to high schoolers, middle schoolers, university students, a lot of them are young men, all of whom, by the way, have seen mainstream porn, which we have to say very clearly, mainstream online porn today is hardcore. 
that's the only porn you get to when you put porn into Google or when you get to porn through Instagram or Snapchat or YouTube. This is what porn is today. Mainstream porn is what pre-internet was considered very hardcore porn, was hard to find in porn shops. You had to know somebody who had that kind of porn. Today, it's free, accessible it's anonymous and it's five seconds away. So the shift from 2000 when the internet became domesticated today is absolutely remarkable. And what happens is very interesting. So I'll go into say a college campus and when I'm speaking, often there's hundreds of students. If you put porn in the title of a talk, you're going to obviously attract students. And this starts off with these male students who you can feel their hostility towards me. It's actually coming off them in waves. And they're thinking, you know, what the hell does this woman, this middle-aged woman know about porn? And I'm standing on the stage, so I'm watching their body language. And as I start to talk, it is amazing to see the changes. Suddenly, they begin to relax. They begin to really reach out. And I often say, if they could reach out and touch me, they would. Why? Because I think a lot of these young men have been dragged into porn. Porn is very much like a spider's web. It lays out a web to catch young men through algorithms and all sorts of ways of dragging them into porn so that they get to see images that they themselves probably would not want. I do not believe that when a 12-year-old puts porn into Google, he for one second thinks he's going to see a world of brutality, a world of violence, a world of sexual torture. He's probably thinking he's going to see maybe breasts, maybe a vagina, maybe people having sex. He's not prepared for what he's going to get catapulted into. And I would argue that the porn industry is traumatizing a generation of boys. And a lot of these boys who grow up into young men who I meet in colleges, a lot of them feel deep shame about what they're watching. They want to stop watching it. Some of them habitual or addictive users. And they are so grateful that someone has come in and said, is this who you really want to be? A guy who gets aroused to images of violence against women? And I would say many of them, the answer is no, they don't want that. They've just been pulled into this trap that this predatory industry has laid for them. And I think to suggest that boys or men are on the hunt for violent misogyny as a somehow biological imperative of masculinity is really to lower the bar about men and is to say that really boys there's maybe a hiccup in masculinity that they want violence and I would argue that's anti-male because I truly believe that men do not want this or boys certainly don't want this I believe that men and boys are born equal to women with all the capacity for humanity and empathy. And I believe that as a sociologist and as a feminist, and most profoundly as the mother of a son. My son was not born violent or with a desire for sexual violence. This culture certainly wanted to turn him into that. But I know he was born with all the capacity for love, empathy, and connection that women are. And if my son was born that way, then your son was born that way. So really, we need to think as feminists, as men's best friends, the ones who say to men, we have faith in your humanity, and we will fight for that humanity, because the porn industry is about destroying it. Absolutely. So that brings me to my next question for you. Can you talk about why pornography is 
not a moral issue. I mean, it can be a moral issue for people, but why it really at the heart is a human rights issue. First of all, I think there is a moral issue, and this is coming not from a religious position. This is coming more from a feminist position that it is a moral issue because of the way it harms women physically, emotionally, and sexually on every way. So I don't think we need to say it's not a moral issue. But what we also need to add in is that it is, at its very core, a civil rights issue because it undermines the civil rights of women. You cannot have a society that is based on equality if you have a porn industry and a huge porn industry that we've got today. Because what pornography does is teach men that women are a subhuman category, that women exist to be used and abused, that women are just sex objects to be discarded when you're done with. And really, the civil rights of women cannot be fully achieved when men are being trained by pornography to think of women as subhuman. Mm-hmm. And we see that with our community. Our community is all wives of porn users who have been abused by their husband's behavior. And they are being harmed significantly because of their husband's abusive views. I like to think that these men were born as empathetic, good people, and that through their excessive porn use have become unable to empathize with their wives. And because of that, in many ways, their behavior becomes abusive. And it's scary. Then we have to set boundaries around that behavior. It's hurting families and it's hurting women. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, studies show, in fact, that women who are partnered with men who are porn users actually feel a greater level of betrayal than if their husband was having an affair. So the level of pain, humiliation, shame that women feel when they find out that their husband is a porn addict is just profound and nobody's speaking about it. And I'd like to say now there is actually a play out called Accidentally Brave by Maddie Corman. And it's off-Broadway. And I would recommend everybody who is ever partnered with a man who is a compulsive or habitual user of porn should go and see. Maddie Corman is married to Jace Alexander, who was a director of Law and Order, well-known actor, director. Maddie herself is an actress. And basically, one day she gets a phone call from her daughter, who is hysterically crying over the phone, saying the police are here, taking all our computers, because it turned out that Maddie's husband, Jace, was actually looking at child pornography. Now, the interesting thing here is, first of all, the play is brilliant, because it's all about Maddie's story. It's not Jace's story, it's Maddie's story, and what it felt like, and the way her whole life just imploded. But what's interesting here is she's still with Jace and she explains in the play the pain of that, but how much she still loves him, although he did watch child abuse images. She herself often in the play is amazed that she's still married to him. But she said, you know, he's a wonderful father. I love him. And he had a sickness that dragged him into this. And he's got his own story to tell of how he got there. She does not tell that. She makes it clear that's his story to tell. But I would say if any of your listeners can go and see Accidentally Brave, it's in New York and it's on till the middle of July. And it is, I think, the first time ever that a woman has spoken out publicly about what it feels like to discover just what's going on in your husband's secret life. It just imploded and exploded her world 
and the world of her family, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the level of trauma isn't just from finding out about that one thing, but also knowing that there are years of lies around that, right? That it is just mind-blowing. It was a family of toxic secrets. What's interesting is that I meet many, many women wherever I go, and you know, I can be having my hair blown out, I can be sitting on a train, I can be interviewed, and so many women I speak to tell me about their partners everywhere and what it feels like. And that now, once they realize what's going on and they look back, and where we say, you know, hindsight's 2020, they saw cues but didn't join the dots. And I would say, first of all, there are many cues to look for. The first thing I would argue is that when you're living with somebody in a relationship, there should be no password protected devices that you don't have access to. That's a really big clue. If you cannot get onto your partner's cell phone or computer or laptop and don't know the password, that's a red flag. Also, if suddenly his interest in sex starts to wane or he's asking you to do stuff he's never asked you to do before. Many women say, I began to feel something was different in him. He acted differently, he felt differently, he spoke differently. So looking back, they realised all along there was clues, but of course they didn't pick up on that because it didn't really occur to them because they were not aware of just how big a public health crisis this is. And then, of course, comes the enormous pain that this man that you've lived with, loved, probably had children with, has this awful, awful subtextual life that you did not know about, but that has actually been poisoning your own life, relationship and family. Yeah, and that's why we here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery actually see it as a consent issue with wives of porn users, that they are unaware of what is going on. And so they're not technically able to give their consent in that situation because they're being lied to in their most intimate relationship. So it is an abuse issue. It's an emotional abuse issue. It's a consent issue. And it's a human rights issue. We're trying to help people understand that so that they can really view pornography use with the lens of severity that it actually deserves. Yeah, and first of all, I don't think there should be any consent because I don't think any woman should consent to her husband, partner using porn. And you know what? What's really interesting is many women I speak to say, well, you know, we watch it together and we don't watch the violent stuff. And I say, well, that's what he watches with you. But he watches completely different stuff when you're not there. So I would say, first of all, even if you watch it together and you think that's a way to make sure there's no secrets, there's a ton of secrets behind that. Because when you leave that house or when you're not there, the porn he's watching is very different to the porn that you're watching together. And even if it's not hardcore, still, the question becomes, why does he need to watch porn in order to have sex with you? Right. Yeah, absolutely. When I say consent issue, I don't mean it in that context. The context in which I mean it is that you expect the relationship to be free of porn and he is using porn and he's not telling you about it. And so there's the consent issue, right? If he said to you, I am going to use porn, whether you like it or not, even though you say, I don't want this in my relationship, I'm going to disregard it and I am going to do it anyway, secretly behind your back, then she would be able to give her consent to be in the relationship, right? She would be able to say, hmm, 
I don't want to be with a man like you. No, thank you. But when they lie to her face and say, I'm not using porn. No, I would never do that. And they are. That's what I'm talking about. That's a consent issue. Men don't realize that when they lie to a woman about pornography, they are not obtaining her consent. And they're betraying everything. So that's the context in which I brought that consent issue up. So let's talk about the lies that the pornography industry tells people in order to gaslight them. Can you talk about what types of lies they are using to manipulate and gaslight people into viewing pornography? Oh, well, they have a multi-billion dollar well-oiled PR machine to perfect these lies. So first of all, they argue that it's harmless, no one's getting hurt, it's a victimless crime, it has no effect, lighten up, if you don't like it, it's your problem. This is the discourse that the pornography industry has really sold to women and to men, but specifically to women, that if you don't like porn, then there's something wrong with you. I mean, there's even male sexologists who write for Psychology Today and different outlets who say, if your husband or partner is using porn and you don't like it, you have to ask yourself, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? That is utter gaslighting of women. As if it's your problem that you don't want your husband masturbating to images of violence against women and you're the one with the problem. It's insane. But the whole culture is kind of pro-porn now. There was recently in Teen Vogue a whole discussion about how to do anal sex and how to look at porn for Teen Vogue and why they called it sex work. I would not call it sex work. I'd call it prostitution. Is a choice for women. That's coming from the teen magazines. And then you've got films, you've got shows on TV Everywhere you go, you've got this consistent message that somehow pornography is part of being hip, it's part of being woke, it's part of being cool, and that you, you prude you, you're the one who's got to figure out why you're so, and they say anti-sex. And in actuality, I can't think of any group that's more anti-sex than the pornographers. They hate sex. They're not into sex. They're into profits. I went to a porn convention in Las Vegas. And when you go to their workshops, we got passes to get into the workshops. Um, no one's talking about sex. Everyone's talking about money. I went to one, like, unbelievably boring session about what's best, bulk emailing versus targeting emailing. It was as if they were selling toothpaste. And this was interesting because it was downstairs. There's two floors. So downstairs is where the pornographers have their meetings and talking about how do you sell porn like any other business. And upstairs were the fans. So I was going upstairs and downstairs and I was interviewing both groups. And the fans were kept saying to me, you know, it's just fun. It's just lighthearted. And I wanted to say to them, you know what, come downstairs with me and sit in these seminars because no one's having any fun. They're all just thinking about ways to get as much money out of you as possible. This is not about fun. This is about profit. And if you took the profit out of the porn industry, it would collapse tomorrow. No one's doing this because they love sex. No one's doing this because they want us to have a fun sex life. They're doing this in order to maximize profits. And the result of their maximizing profits is really a bankruptcy of emotion, of connection, of intimacy, and of really what it means to be human. Yeah, I love how you say that. It is so degrading to humanity in general. So let's talk about what you said. You must be opposed to sex. 
We know that people who are opposed to porn are not sex negative, but what word would you use rather than sex positive? Because today, if you say I'm sex positive, people think that then you would say, oh, okay, then I like porn, like hookups are good. Describe what that means, sex positive, and how that may be helping or hurting people. Well, the term sex positive has been co-opted by the pro-porn crowd. And I think it's a real problem because that means that those of us who are against porn are, by definition, sex negative. What I always say is I am pro-sex and that's why I'm anti-porn. You can't be pro-porn and pro-sex. You have to pick one. And I've picked being pro-sex. And when I say pro-sex, I am pro a healthy, creative, fun sex that you are the author of, not a sex where a group of creepy men who are out to maximize profits are deciding what is the best sex act that can degrade and debase a woman in order to maximize profits. We've got to think about pornography as an industry. And like all industries, it will do whatever it takes to maximize their profit. And if it takes completely destroying a woman's body, which they do all the time, if it takes to giving her, I don't know how many STDs, because we know from studies that women get gonorrhea of the eye, chlamydia of the anus, all things you don't normally hear about from porn. If you think about what porn does to women's bodies then how can you possibly call it sex positive? And so what we want to talk about is what does it mean to be the author of your own sexuality? What does it mean to have fun experimentation, creativity? And really that is none of my business. What is of interest to people in what their sexuality is, as long, of course, as it's not hurting anyone, it's done consensually, and it doesn't involve violence, then people should be able to develop any sexuality they want. Often, when I go into lecture, people say to me, well, if we don't use porn, what should we do? And I say, well, look, if I was coming here to speak against the fast food industry, you wouldn't say to me, what can I eat? And I wouldn't give you recipes because I don't know what you want to eat. You go out and figure out what you like to eat. Figure out what flavors you like. Figure out what you want to cook. You go and experiment, but don't ask me to tell you what to eat. Same thing with sex. I don't know what's going to interest you, but again, as long as it's consensual, non-violent, and based on an egalitarian sexuality, go and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. Thank you. <laughs> I really hope that the women listening can gain more confidence in knowing that there are so many people in the world who are behind you, who support you and say, porn is wrong. You do not have to put up with it in your relationship. In closing, Gail, do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I want to say that to women is that I understand that women have been completely, in a way, caught in this net of porn, just in a way as men have. But for women, it's often worse because you often have a family with this guy you have a mortgage to pay. In a way, you're very trapped in this. And so what I want to say to women, first of all, is you cannot live with a man who is a porn user and have a sense of bodily integrity, a sense of loving your own body, a sense of a healthy sexuality. The two just don't go together. So you have to really figure out how you're going to deal with this. And one way 
which is not always so great, is to figure out therapy with the guy. But often a lot of sex therapists make it worse rather than better because they will be on his side. So you have to be very careful who you go to as a therapist. If your partner is not willing or does not see this as a problem, then you really cannot stay. You can't do that to yourself. You cannot give up that part of yourself that says that this is wrong because you will look back in 10, 15 years, five years, and you'll look in the mirror one day and you'll wonder, who am I? And what have I become? And what is my life? And you don't want to do that. And plus, if you have kids, you do not want your kids around this toxic life of a man using porn in the home. First of all, it puts them at risk. And secondly, you want for your kids a healthy sexuality. And if their father or whoever the man is they're living with is using porn, ultimately it is going to seep into their lives on every level about who they are. For girls, it's going to have a whole set of messages about what it means to be a girl. For boys, a whole different set of messages. And kids are very savvy. They pick up things that we think they don't pick up on. They know when this is going on. So my argument definitely to women or my advice would be as difficult as this is, and I understand, ultimately you have to do what is right for your moral compass, which is not living with a man who is a porn user. And if you have children, your first and most important commitment is that you bring up healthy adults and you cannot do that in a toxic porn home. Thank you. I love hearing this from you as a feminist. It feels different and it sounds different. It sounds so much more empowering than I would say typical church talks we get about love, forgiveness, and service. I have to say what really bothers me is this whole notion of the recovery movement, which has been hijacked by some groups that are questionable. But I've been at conferences where I've spoken to some of these recovery teams and one of the things I've noticed first of all I was at a specific conference where they all had their materials out and I was going along speaking to them and a lot of them had their arms firmly planted around their wife like she was kind of a prop here and they would say we're in recovery and I would say okay I'm just a bit confused here so who was using porn here and he would say I am I would say, so you mean you're in recovery and she's recovering from you using porn. Let's be very clear here who's doing what. And it felt disingenuous. It felt that their wives were being used as a prop. And the questions that they were never addressing is that if a man has been using porn, the answer is not simply just stop using porn, because that's not enough. That's like being a dry drunk, because he still got in his head all of those images all of those notions of what it means to be a man, which is power over women, which is the key message of porn, is the hotter the sex, the more power you have over her, or rather the more power you have over her, the hotter the sex. So I don't believe in that forgiveness. If he is truly sorry and been through a journey and really understands the pain he's caused and also the women in porn, he has to make amends with all of those women who he has basically supported an industry that has destroyed women's lives as well. It's the women in porn, not just the women he lives with. But to just jump into this notion of forgiveness 
is a too easy out and it doesn't really get to the core of the problem of what he has learned in his many years of using porn, which is, believe me, not a sexuality that you want in your life. What you're hearing here is a much more feminist analysis coming from a non-faith-based position, and this is not to criticize the faith-based positions, but to say it's not enough to say that you believe in God and forgiveness or whatever. You need to see from your partner serious change and commitment to this because otherwise you're just dealing with somebody whose sexuality has been defined by pornography even if he's not looking at pornography. Absolutely. The same abusive thought processes, entitlement, feelings of superiority are going to remain and that is very dangerous. What we're seeing right now is so many men claiming to be in recovery yet they're still exhibiting these abusive behaviors, lying, manipulation, anger. I don't know whether the porn has stopped or not, right? Because the lying continues. But at the very least, we can see that the abusive behaviors are continuing. And even if they're not looking at porn, they've got porn tapes in their head. Right. That's why here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, we see it as an abuse issue. As women start to wrap their head around that, it makes it a little easier to know what to do. Okay, instead of loving and serving and forgiveness, what I really need to do here is protect myself. What do I need to have a safe home and to live a safe life? And I'm going to work toward my own personal safety and the safety of my children. And a joyful life. We want joy as well in our lives, connection and intimacy and love and all of those things that make life worth living. Safe is obviously the most important, but we want much, much more than that. And we deserve more than that. Right now, a lot of my listeners are just trying to get to safety. That is the first base, so to speak. And they're not there yet. When you're in that abuse, it's so overwhelming to even think like, all I want is peace, you know, please just get me to the shore. I totally understand that. But what I say as well is, and why I bring you joy is that because your life is often so steeped in misery in this position, it's hard to ever think that you can ever feel joy again. And it's really important to look to the future as well as to what you want for yourself. And in that future has to be joy. And you deserve a loving, connected relationship. One that has absolutely no porn in it, because as soon as porn gets into your relationship, then it becomes toxic. Dr. Dines, thank you so much for spending time with me and coming on today's episode. Well, it was a pleasure and thank you for asking me and it's wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. Again, you can find Dr. Dines and her work at culturereframed.org. If this podcast is helpful to you, please share it with people on Facebook and tag us on Instagram. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out to educate people about how pornography use is abusive, is an abuse issue. We appreciate your donations. If you haven't already, please go to our website, btr.org. Scroll down to the bottom, click on make a donation and set your recurring monthly donation today. Every single one of your ratings on iTunes or your other podcasting apps helps isolated women find us. So if you're inclined and you haven't already, please rate us on iTunes. If this summer is tough for you and it is for many, many victims, please join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. With multiple sessions a day and multiple time zones, it's easy to hop on even if you're on vacation, even if you're on a family reunion, to get feedback about what steps to take next to get to safety. And until next week, stay safe out there.